0: Allie is on vacation, so I don't think that she's prepared to say anything more about that. But as you know, it's always a lot of fun. And then we will have one more uh, Grand Rounds presentation this season um, uh, from um, a filmmaker uh, at UNH, uh, Dan Habib, whose um, title is Who Cares About uh, Kelsey? Uh, Highlighting Innovative Approaches uh, Which Help Youth With Emotional and Behavioral Disorders to Succeed in Life. Um, this morning, it's a real pleasure to have uh, Joanna Riley uh, uh, present uh, Grand Rounds. Um, Joanna is a senior resident, and our program uh, will soon be moving on to Boston Children's where she'll take a position in the Urgent Care uh, Center uh, down there. Uh, jo- Joanna has uh, uh, dual nationality uh, with, between the U.S. Uh, and the U.K. Uh, she qualified Uh, in Glasgow uh, a number of years ago, 2008 or so, and also has a Bachelor of Science degree uh, from Glasgow. Uh, She subsequently uh, did uh, two years of uh, rotating house jobs uh, in Scotland uh, before joining our residency program here three years ago. Uh, She's been very active uh, in a number of uh, academic uh, activities and community-related activities uh, and this morning she's going to be talking to us about a nutritional issue, uh, fructose. Uh, and I have no idea how you got interested in this, but I'm sure you're going to tell us how. So Joanna, welcome. Great, thanks. Yep.
1: So. Mm-hmm. Thank you. so first of all, I just want to check if this is working and everyone can hear me. Yes, okay. Um, so the reason, I guess I've always sort of been interested in nutrition um, and healthy eating and healthy living. And I think the initial idea for this presentation actually came in my very, very first month as an intern here where I did a cardiology elective and I was coming back up the road from somewhere um, in New Hampshire uh, with Dr. Berman and we were talking about the obesity epidemic. I don't know if he's here, but um, he probably doesn't remember. But he said something about the fact that, you know, we, we cut the fat out of our diet, but instead we just eat a whole bunch more carbohydrates, and that's really kind of the issue. And I thought, huh, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, so coming to my grand rounds, I sort of thought about it a little bit more and decided that's what I wanted to, to talk about. So now that we all have our um, sugary breakfast items, I'm going to talk to you about sugar, and more specifically the fructose component of sugar and whether that's making us sick. So. A brief overview of what I'm gonna talk about, just um, go over the trends and um, consequences of uh, the overweight and obesity epidemic that we have today. Look at the changes in the dietary patterns of both adults and children in the USA over the past several decades, um, and within that sort of the growth of sugar and fructose within our food supply. I'll briefly touch on just normal appetite regulation um, and then um, show you how the liver metabolizes both glucose and fructose and how those differ um, because that is um, kind of what you need to know in order to understand some of the detrimental metabolic effects that have been associated with fructose ingestion. So so everyone's on the same page and we know what we're talking about when we say fructose. This is sort of the wiki. um, If you were to Google fructose, it's a hexose that has the same chemical formula as glucose. Sucrose, which is our um, normal table sugar, is a glucose um, joined to a fructose molecule. And the majority of our dietary fructose comes either as sucrose or as high fructose corn syrup. Um, And I want to just say right off the bat that um, they are no different. High-fructose corn syrup has glucose and fructose that are not bound to each other. Um, but as soon as uh, sucrose hits your small intestine, the bond between the glucose and fructose is immediately cleaved by sucrase, and they're absorbed separately. There's absolutely no evidence out there to show that there are really any difference. So um, just so we have that straight right at the start. Um, and there's very little free fructose, so just fructose on its own in nature. Tiny amounts in fruits and honey, and that's about it. Fructose has no known physiological function and it's metabolized um, primarily by the liver and a small amount by the kidneys. Um, And unlike glucose, there's no receptor for fructose on pancreatic B cells. So we've all seen these uh, colorful images, the dramatic color change as we go from a sort of um, slimmer blue country to this kind of shocking abrasive red color of, um, the, with the high prevalence of overweight and obesity. Um, alongside this, you know, more of us have hypertension, coronary heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, the list um, goes on and on. By 2050, um, it's estimated that a third of Americans are projected to have diabetes, and among adults under the age of 70, obesity is um, now the second biggest killer after tobacco. 30% of um, young people are too heavy to qualify for military service nowadays, and nearly $200 billion um, um, are spent each year just treating obesity and the diseases associated with it. So it's not surprising as well that the rates of obesity in children have um, sort of dramatically increased um, over the last several decades. 17% of children are now obese. Um, and when you look at kids who are classed as either overweight or obese, that um, comes out at nearly 30%. And these are just this um, is information or, um, from a national health and nutrition survey just showing the, the differences in the prevalence of obesity in kids by age group. So it's a pretty striking increase, and then in our state in New Hampshire, how do we shape up? So our overall rate of overweight and obesity is 29.4 percent, and we're just um, skirting under the national average of 30 percent. So something's happened in our population over this time. It's been about you know 30 or 40 years, so not long enough for any sort of genetic change to take place, and so everyone's trying to figure out how did how did we get here and what can we do about it. Um, and so I liked this quote, um, this was a Republican governor, Tommy Thompson, who said on the Today Show in 2004, we just eat too damn much. And to be fair, he's right, you know, portion sizes have increased. We eat more foods out of the home than in the home. Um, our, what we eat has drastically changed. Um, there's disproportionate and misguided advertising of unhealthy foods. <coughs> Um, and we're probably uh, our energy expenditure has probably decreased as well. Um, so this shows the caloric intake of adults um, from the sort of 1971 to 75 period up until pretty recently, um, and. During this period, our calorie intake as a nation (coughs) increased drastically. So from 1971 to the peak in 2001, 2002, we had an increase of an extra 285 calories per day, um, which may or may not seem like a a large amount, but um, if you add that up over the course of a year, using how many calories it takes, extra calories to put on um, a pound of fat, you don't burn those extra calories off and you gain 30 pounds per year. Um, There may be a sort of good trend downwards, but um, time will tell if that pans out to to anything. So where are these extra calories coming from? That's one of the key questions I wanted to address today. So something I termed the the low-fat revolution occurred in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, Over the course of the 20th century, the prevalence of heart disease had begun to rise, and then in 1955, President Eisenhower had a heart attack and so the country sort of went on this mission against coronary heart disease. And there was a guy, Ansel Keys, he was a Minnesota epidemiologist um, and he was on a sabbatical in England at Oxford University in the 1950s. Um, He was interested in the effects of diet on the health of populations and so he carried out a study which was published in 1970 um, called the Seven Countries Study that followed over 12,000 men um, and he watched them for the development of heart disease and its complications, and attempted to link that with their diet. And he found a correlation um, between a high fat, um, high cholesterol diet, um, with higher rates of uh, coronary heart disease. Since that study came out, it's been criticized for um, a number of reasons. It was initially actually the 22 countries, not seven countries study, and when you plot out all 22 countries, the correlation, between dietary fat intake and coronary heart disease um, is not quite as strong. Around that time, trans fats um, were coming into play, which we now know are particularly detrimental to our health, um, so they weren't able to be separated out. Um, and probably most importantly, he didn't do a multivariate correlation analysis with sucrose, or sugar, table sugar. Um, so he didn't hold that constant and show that dietary fat was still strongly associated <laughs> with coronary heart disease. Um, So what he did show was a correlation between two things, but obviously we all know correlation is not causation. However, in 1977, the U.S. government introduced official recommendations for us to reduce our dietary intake um, from fat to 30% of our total calories. And so we did. Um, We managed to reduce the fat, and food companies created new lines of low-fat or fat-free versions of our favorite foods, Snack Wells were introduced and actually became one of the most successful products for um, Nabisco that they ever made, earning $500 million for them over the three years since their introduction. Um, But if you take the fat out of the food, it turns out the food doesn't taste very good. (laughs) So the food industry had to find something that was non-perishable, that was relatively cheap, and that kind of put that flavor back into the food so that people would actually buy it. Um, And it turned out that actually in the end that that thing was um, gonna be sugar. So while we were cutting out the fat, this graph just shows the percentage of macronutrient intakes over kind of the same period that we've been talking about. So we cut down the fat, our protein intake, which is the line along the bottom, stayed pretty much the same and our carbohydrate intake increased. And while carbohydrates in themselves are not necessarily harmful, nowadays our carbohydrates um, often come along with added sugar. So our world is getting sweeter. Um, For the most of human history, um, sugar consumption in our diet was incredibly low, and we mainly lived on just meats and nuts and vegetables. And then after the Crusades, sugar cane was introduced uh, to Europe from Asia, and sugar consumption really um, began to rise quite rapidly in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, It became more widely available as colonial trading increased. And then in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, sugar consumption was boosted again by the introduction of coffee and tea when we put our sugar in that. Um, and then again, sort of the, the 20th century, um, as our, what we know as sort of junk food, um, you know, chocolate bars, milkshakes, sodas, um, sort of became more and more a part of our diet. And then, in the 1960s, a novel new technology was introduced, um, which used corn starch, um, glucose derived from corn starch, and isomerized that half of that with chemicals to fructose, and high-fructose corn syrup was invented. Um, and this was just what they were looking for. It was um, cheap. It was easy to produce. It was easy to transport. It had a bit of a preservative effect as well in our foods, um, and so corn sweeteners or high fructose corn syrup um, gradually overtook the refined um, cane and beet sugars as the main sweetener in our diet. And all the while the total amount of sweeteners that we were consuming was increasing. And so now um, the average intake of, of sugar per year is 140 pounds per person. Um, and this just, table just shows sort of the number of calories in our diet from added sugar. Um, and how much they've increased um, over the last few decades. So fructose um, has increased, let's see if I can find it here, um, from about 158 calories per day to 238, 228, sorry, and our total calorie load from sugar from 235 calories per day to 318 calories per day. Um, and actually most of that, not surprisingly, is from kind of soft drinks and, and sugary drinks. So sugar has been incorporated into most of the food we eat. 75% of all processed or packaged foods today contain added sugar. And in the U.S., we eat 31% more packaged food than fresh food. If you go to McDonald's, of course, not the the best example for healthy eating, but actually there are only seven items on the menu, which are these ones, that don't contain added sugar. Um, And obviously that's as long as you don't add sugar or ketchup or any sort of dipping sauce to them. And so, like I've mentioned, our per capita energy consumption from added sugar rose pretty drastically from the 1970s um, to the 1990s. The significant sources of fructose um, in the pediatric diet, and I have pediatric in brackets because I think it's pretty much uh, everybody's diet, but fruit juice and sugar-sweetened beverages are the main culprit. Um, There are a bunch of studies out there which um, show the relationship between increased juice or soda intake and weight gain. This is just one of a cross-sectional survey of parents of uh, children participating in WIC in New York State um, in the late 1990s that found that juice intake predicts increased weight gain in children who are at risk or overweight. In children aged 6 to 11, the calorie intake from sugary beverages increased by 60% between the late 1980s to the late 2000s. Um, Obviously, the calories they were getting from that increased. And also, the percentage of children consuming any sugary beverages um, rose. Um, In adolescents, sugar-sweetened beverages are estimated to contribute over 300 calories per day to their daily energy intake. And we're also now um, snacking a lot more. Um, Specifically, this is looking at children's snacking patterns. So in the 1970s, kids consumed about one snack per day, and they now have three snacks per day. They consume 168 calories more per day in snacks um, than they did in the 1970s, and that increase was actually highest in the, the youngest age group. And their overall energy intake is increased by 113 calories per day. So those extra snacks aren't displacing the calories from something else. They're just adding to what they're taking in. Um, And not surprisingly, the main snacking sources are um, desserts and salty snacks, and most of those things, as we've seen, actually have um, some added sugar to them. So something is, is not working, our bodies should be able to keep our energy uh, in balance um, to stop us from going into energy excess because clearly that's detrimental to our health and detrimental to the human race overall. Um, so something is allowing our energy balance to get all out of whack um, and why, the question is why do we continue to eat all these extra calories when the energy status of our cells is clearly full. Um, And there is growing evidence it might have something to do with sugar and specifically the fructose component of sugar. Um, So I wanted to just go quickly go over appetite control. Um, It it is a really complex interaction between a lot of peripheral and central factors, but I'm gonna talk about um, two of the main hormones that are involved. Um, The first one of which is something called leptin. The mouse on the right can't make leptin. Uh, his brain doesn't know when he's full, um, and he keeps eating um, his little mouse food um, sort of forever and ever. It's a strain of obese mice termed ob-mice, which were discovered in 1950. And they weigh three times as much as normal mice, and their appetite's insatiable. It took another 44 years before the defective gene was discovered and cloned, and its product was leptin, which actually comes from the, the Greek word leptos, which means thin. Um, You give um, these mice back their leptin, and they actually lose weight, their energy levels increase, and they slim down, and they're happy mice again. Um, Leptin is a hormone that's produced by fat tissue and functions as a circulating signal from fat stores to the CNS to both inhibit food intake and also increase energy expenditure. Um, It's thought to be primarily involved in the medium to long-term control of appetite and fat stores. And obese individuals have high circulating leptin, and so thinking is that there's some leptin resistance going on. Um, the serum and plasma leptin levels are higher in people with um, higher BMIs and higher percentage body fat, and it also crosses the, the blood-brain barrier, and CSFs, CSFs, CSF levels are also higher um, in people who are overweight. Um, and leptin is mainly regulated by the insulin-induced changes in glucose metabolism um, within fat cells. Um, Insulin increases leptin release with a time delay of a few hours, and as I um, sort of alluded to at the start, without the receptors um, on the beta cells of your pancreas, for fructose, fructose doesn't stimulate leptin, um, doesn't stimulate insulin release, uh, and leptin also has different ways that it's <coughs> going to increase energy expenditure. The other main hormone is something called ghrelin, which is kind of just the opposite. It's the hormone that makes you feel hungry rather than the hormone that makes you feel full, um, secreted by the stomach and brain. Um, The highest levels are right before a voluntary um, intake of food and they decrease after a meal. And the uh, interaction between leptin and ghrelin hasn't really been fully elucidated. They might exert negative feedbacks on each other, and we just were really not sure at the moment. But basically um, what to remember is that leptin induces weight loss by the suppression of food intake, and ghrelin functions as an appetite stimulatory signal. So dieting and energy balance is always kind of focused on this dogma, um, a calorie is a calorie. Um, But what if a calorie is not a calorie? So we've seen that we're taking in more calories overall, but they're mainly coming from carbohydrates and therefore um, also from sugar. And is there something about these calories that's promoting energy storage or impacting our energy feedback systems is the question. And maybe we should think of it as a calorie burned is a calorie burned, but a calorie eaten is not the same as a calorie eaten. So prepare yourselves. I'm gonna do a little bit of biochemistry here. I it's not my strong suit so hopefully I uh, it's going to be understandable but it's important to kind of figure out um the differences between glucose and fructose and I want to look at how the liver metabolizes both glucose and fructose um specifically the liver That's where a lot of the detrimental effects come from and also because the liver is really the only organism, the only organ in the body that can metabolize uh, fructose. So first of all let's look at what happens when the liver metabolizes 120 calories of glucose which is about two slices of white bread. So 80% of that or about 96 calories is going to be used up by all the cells in the body and the other 24 calories are going to go to the liver. In the periphery, glucose also stimulates the release of insulin, which binds to its receptor on liver cells, and this stimulates its substrate, insulin receptor substrate 1, and tyrosine phosphorylates it to make it active. This active IRS-1 induces transcription of a factor called AKT, which downregulates gluconeogenesis or making new glucose in the liver, and also increases the activity of something called SREBP1. This activates the enzyme glucokinase, which then fixes glucose in the liver as glucose 6-phosphate. AKT also activates glycogen synthesis, and the majority of the glucose 6-phosphate, or about 20 calories, will go to glycogen, which is the storage carbohydrate. And the liver can store large amounts of glycogen without experiencing dysfunction or damage, as demonstrated by continued normal liver function in patients with glycogen storage diseases. A little of the glucose that doesn't get stored as glycogen is gonna be metabolized to pyruvate through the glycolysis and enter uh, the Krebs cycle in the mitochondria for ATP production with some citrate as a byproduct. And any um, excess acetyl-CoA not used up in the Krebs cycle exits the mitochondria citrate via the citrate shuttle and then is metabolized by these three enzymes that, um, that I've just sort of put as ACL, ACC, and FAS here. It doesn't matter what they stand for but basically these are the enzymes that are responsible for the lipogenic pathway, um, or turning energy into fat. There's only a very small amount of citrate um, produced by this um, metabolism of glucose uh, for these enzymes to actually work on, but basically it gets um, worked on and converted to acyl-CoA, and then by a series of steps is packaged with glycerol and triglyceride uh, to give you VLDL, which is then transported out of the liver Um, for storage in fat cells, and then that can serve as a substrate for peripheral energy metabolism. Obviously, you don't want to make too much VLDL because we all know that um, is a risk factor for promoting atherogenesis and weight gain and a bunch of other detrimental effects. Um, But if you start off with this 24 calories of glucose, maybe a half to one calorie of it is going to become VLDL, so that's not so bad. In addition, intracellular ATP and citrate have a negative feedback effect on both phosphofructokinase, which isn't on here, but it's the main rate-limiting step in glycolysis, um, and so hepatic glucose catabolism is tuned to the energy status of the liver cells. Insulin um, itself also regulates glucokinase expression and activity of several of the key glycolytic enzymes. So in liver cells, just as it really should be in all the cells um, of the body, the breakdown of glucose is matched to the energy status of the cell. In addition, out in the periphery, because insulin goes up in response to glucose, you end up getting leptin release, and the brain sees this and shuts off the signal for more eating. So, Obviously, given the focus of this talk, the metabolism of fructose is going to be a little different. So, let's see what the liver does with 120 calories of sucrose, um, which as you remember is half glucose, half fructose. And that's about the equivalent of a glass of orange juice. So for the glucose, just like we saw before, for half of those calories, 60, 12 will make it to the liver, and the other 80% will go to the body for metabolism. Um, But all 60 calories of the fructose are going to go straight to the liver because the liver is the only organ that can metabolize it. So the liver, therefore, starts off with 72 calories to deal with, or three times the substrate. In addition, out in the periphery, no insulin is stimulated um, by fructose ingestion because there are no receptors for it on the beta cells. Fructose will enter the liver cells um, and is very rapidly phosphorylated to fructose 1-phosphate by the enzyme fructokinase. Um, An important distinction between glucose and fructose metabolism is that neither um, this enzyme or the other enzymes required to make its intermediates uh, are regulated by either insulin or the energy status of the cell. So fructose is therefore able to um, bypass the main rate-limiting step of glycolysis, and fructose metabolism um, just kind of occurs indefinitely no matter how much um, you take in. In, conversion, in contrast to glucose's um, conversion to glycogen, um, the majority of the fructose-1-phosphate load will actually um, go down and enter the Krebs cycle, um, and with the resultant much larger volume of acetyl-CoA entering the TCA cycle in the mitochondria. The mitochondria can't metabolize, it can't handle um, this large load that it's presented with, and so much more of um, that extra will exit as citrate uh, via the citrate shuttle. In addition, um, a proportion of one of the early glycolytic intermediates of uh, fructose um, called xylulose 5-phosphate is produced. And and this is a potent stimulator of something called PP2A. I'm not gonna sort of spell out what all these things are cause it doesn't really, it's not really important. But basically, PP2A activates something called carbohydrate response element binding protein. And this then, um, it activates those same three enzymes that we saw before, the enzymes that are responsible for um, making new fat in the liver. However, this time we have an unregulated source of acyl-CoA. Um, to, Act as the building block for new fat making. And so that's all packaged into VLDL, and that ends up resulting in dyslipidemia, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, some of the um, acyl CoA escapes um, being packaged as VLDL and is instead accumulates as lipid droplets within the liver um, and contributes to fatty liver. In addition, a high consumption rate of um, hepatic ATP up here um, in order to phosphorylate the fructose initially um, leads to ATP depletion and the formation of AMP, which is the adenosine, and that's degraded uh, to the waste product, uric acid. Um, That's obviously well known as a cause of gout, but it also has the ability to contribute to the risk of hypertension because it blocks this enzyme nitric acid. nitric oxide synthase, um, which is your sort of endogenous vasodilator. Both the acyl-CoA produced by the metabolism of citrate and also the fructose 1-phosphate can also activate something called Junk 1. Junk 1 induces serine phosphorylation of insulin receptor substrate 1, which is different from what we saw with glucose where it was tyrosine phosphorylated, Um, and the serine phosphorylated form is inactive. So now you have insulin resistance in the liver um, because your IRS-1 is being deactivated by this serine phosphorylation. And this means the pancreas has to work harder to generate more insulin, which is in itself lipogenic. And the high insulin levels in the periphery um, contribute to peripheral insulin resistance as well. So the typical low-fat diet isn't really low-fat if it's substituting um, sucrose and therefore fructose for fat. Because although fructose is technically a carbohydrate, it's metabolized like a fat and 30% of its calories are gonna be um, made into fat here and here. So hopefully I've kind of at least started to convince you that fructose is not glucose, it's a little different. Um, It increases the calorie load to the liver. Acute fructose ingestion doesn't stimulate insulin because there are no receptors. So if you don't get insulin, your leptin won't go up, your brain won't know you've eaten something. And due to the differences in the metabolism of fructose in the liver, it contributes to the development of insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, hyperlipidemia, hyperuricemia, and also something um, called the formation of advanced glycosylation end products. So I'm gonna take each of these things and just talk about them briefly. They could really each be an entire presentation in themselves, um, but I'll go over just a couple of studies that are out there um, to kind of reinforce the consequences of fructose consumption. Um, so without our insulin re- release um, caused by ingestion of fructose, we, we don't get leptin release. Um, in monkeys, um, it was found that following an IV infusion of either saline, glucose, or fructose, that the monkeys who were given the glucose infusion had markedly increased plasma glucose, which is not surprising, and um, also insulin concentrations, and then progressively increased their plasma leptin concentration for 48 hours after the infusion. And the monkeys who um, received the fructose infusion, they didn't see any stimulation of insulin secretion, um, nor did they see any increase in circulating leptin. To test the leptin response um, to fructose in humans, a study was done where 12 women were randomized to either receive a fructose-containing beverage during three meals on one day, and then a glucose-containing beverage um, during the three meals on a separate day, um, with the sweetened beverages providing around 30% of their total energy intake. Um, Eating the three meals that were high in fructose um, resulted in lower circulating leptin concentrations over a 24-hour period than the high-glucose meals. In addition, the hormone ghrelin, sort of the hormone that makes you hungry, those concentrations decreased um, about one to three hours after a high-glucose meal, um, whereas ghrelin was much less suppressed following the high-fructose meals. As I mentioned before, um, most overweight and obese individuals actually have high circulating leptin levels, and so the thinking is that there's probably an element of leptin resistance going on, similar to how we see in um, people who have hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. So in order to look at that, um, rats who are fed a high uh, fructose diet for six months and then tested for leptin um, resistance, and they did this by injecting leptin intraperitoneally. (laughs) to the rats, and they found that in the rats who were fed the fructose-free diet, the leptin injection led to reduced 24-hour food intake. Um, However, this wasn't seen in the fructose-fed rats, and this lack of the appetite-suppressing effect of leptin in the fructose-fed rats was also associated with um, reduced signaling in the hypothalamus, um, and also transcription of the leptin receptor, Um, and that, they felt, was indicating that there was uh, resistance to leptin might actually occur as well at the level of receptor signaling. Um, Obese subjects with high peripheral leptin levels show low CSF levels, um, so that's thought to be a marker of um, a possible defect in transportation of leptin at the blood-brain barrier, Mm -hmm. and also leptin transport across the blood-brain barrier has actually been shown to be decreased in mice fed a high fructose diet. Um, I think that's a little bit harder to to figure out in humans, but they were able to do it with the mice. Looking at fructose consumption and insulin resistance, so again, just starting off with a couple of studies in animals, so impaired glucose handling was seen after high fructose versus high starch or high sucrose diets um, over a short period, two to four weeks. Um, Long term fructose feeding in animals also induces hyperinsulinemia and higher fasting serum glucose than cornstarch feeding. And in rats fed a very high fructose diet um, for a couple of weeks, the amount of insulin receptor, mRNA, and the number of receptors for insulin in skeletal muscle and liver decreased. So all just sort of indicators that there's an element of insulin resistance happening after fructose feeding. In humans, um, if you feed fructose at 25% of energy requirements, and this was a study in adults who were given glucose or fructose at this amount, um, it was found that fructose but not glucose increases visceral adipose tissue deposition. Uh, And that's the fat kind of around your central organs, which is known uh, to increase damaging cytokines into the portal circulation um, that promote hepatic insulin resistance and can also exacerbate uh, hyperinsulinemia. Um, Insulin sensitivity decreased by 17% in the fructose-consuming individuals, but um, wasn't significantly decreased in the glucose-consuming individuals. And then here is, uh, from that same study, the, fruit, the beverages were consumed for a total of 10 weeks. So this is the response of serum glucose, which is along the top here, and um, serum insulin levels. And this was after an oral glucose um, tolerance test. So they did one of these at the start of the study, and they did it again nine weeks into the study when, after they'd been consuming their glucose or fructose sweetened beverages. Um, and so along the the start of the study is the the kind of solid black line, and then the... Um, nine week period is the the dashed line. And you can see that there was a significant increase in both the, um, the serum glucose concentration and also the um, serum insulin concentration after nine weeks of fructose feeding, um, but that this wasn't seen in the glucose um, consuming group. And so the study authors suggested that the fructose uh, drinks might produce or might promote some hepatic insulin resistance um, by providing the direct source of intrahepatic lipid via that process that we saw in our biochemistry slides with them—the um, new fat making and fat deposition. Um, that was one of the the factors that they proposed as maybe contributing to this. But what was clear is that you know fructose and not glucose consumption um, really promoted uh, hyperinsulinemia and decreased glucose tolerance. In that same study, they also investigated the effects on both the plasma lipid um, and lipoprotein concentrations, and not surprisingly, they found that um, these were increased during fructose consumption not during glucose consumption. The graphs at the top here, so we have the glucose-consuming um, group in the light gray and the fructose in the dark gray. This um, one at the top is the fasting apolipoprotein B, um, and that's a, um, a substance which is needed for, the, uh, for making VLDL, And also, um, when your hepatic lipid stores are increased, your degradation of apolipoprotein B is decreased, so the more fat you have in the liver, the more apolipoprotein B you're gonna have. And they found significant increases, that's our little stars up here, um, in the fructose um, beverage group uh, in the apolipoprotein B, but not in the glucose um, beverage group, which their levels pretty much stayed the same. Um, the middle bar charts are the other ones that I wanted to talk about. Um, this was measuring something called fasting small dense uh, lipoprotein. Um, and this was something that I didn't know about until I did this uh, presentation, but uh, there are different types of LDL, um, and not all LDL is actually bad for you. So. Type A is um, also called large, buoyant LDL. It's um, sort of big, bouncy molecules that float around in your bloodstream. They're too big to really get under the endothelium and start the atherogenic process, um, and are found to be pretty neutral in terms of cardiovascular disease risk. And that's the vast majority of LDL. Type B is also known as small, dense LDL, or SDLDL. um, And those are smaller, heavy particles that sink they're able to get under the endothelium and they've been specifically implicated in plaque formation. And while dietary fat does increase your total LDL level, it does this mainly by increasing type A, um, whereas carbohydrate intake has been shown specifically to increase type B, or the small dense LDL. So going back to that slide, um, so this makes a little bit more sense hopefully, the fructose consuming group um, showed a significant increase in their fasting small dense lipoprotein levels, which is in keeping with um, other studies that are out there. They also were able to measure the amount of new fat that the livers of these people made. So this is a graph of, um, DNL is de novo lipogenesis and then the change in that. So the change in the amount of new fat that the, the subject's livers were making. Um, and they looked at that, um, during a period of steady state feeding. So each of these lines is, uh, this is for the glucose group and this is for the fructose group, and they're comparing them to the amount of new fat making at the start of the study, so before the nine weeks of um, fructose or glucose feeding. So the glucose group, um, you know, didn't really see any big change in the amount of uh, new fat that their liver was making at the start of a steady-state feeding period. However, compared to the beginning of the study, after nine weeks of fructose feeding, um, this group um, did show a significant increase in the amount of new fat that their livers made. So fructose and dyslipidemia um, definitely occurs. Fructose stimulates de novo lipogenesis in the liver. Um, It results in higher 24-hour Triglyceride concentrations in the serum, and this is an independent risk factor for atherosclerosis. It also suppresses lipolysis in adipose tissue by um, various different mechanisms, but sort of suppresses the the breakdown of fat, and also that keeps fat in the circulation for longer. Um, and the generation of high plasma VLDL triglycerides leads to the generation of these smaller, more dense, more atherogenic LDL particles. Thinking back to the fructose um, biochemistry slide, uh, you saw that in order to get rid of all that excess um, ADP that was produced, um, it resulted in the waste product, uric acid, so people have looked at the uh, relationship between fructose and hyperuricemia. Um, And uric acid has been positively associated with blood pressure elevation and primary hypertension in children. And so, A study was done to assess whether sugar sweetened beverage consumption, which um, as we know is pretty much the largest contributor um, of added sugars in our diet today, if that was associated with higher uric acid levels and also with higher blood pressure in adolescents. So a group in San Francisco did an analysis of some cross-sectional data from nearly 5,000 adolescents from the National Nutrition Survey. Um, And they used a multivariate linear regression analysis um, sort of accounting for a lot of different factors to um, evaluate the association of sugar-sweetened beverage consumption, um, serum uric acid, and blood pressure. So they wanted to determine if there was um, a link between the the fructose and the sugar-sweetened beverages and with these two things. And they found um, a small but um, statistically significant trend um, of an increasing serum uric acid level with increasing sugar-sweetened beverage intake. And between the, the highest consuming group, so over 36 ounces of these beverages per day, compared to the lowest zero, there was a 0.2 milligram difference. And that was in the fully adjusted model where they adjusted for you know pretty much everything you could think of. Um, and so while that amount might seem pretty negligible, um, The same difference in uric acid levels was associated with a significantly um, increased risk of gout in a large prospective adult cohort study. Um, Looking at fructose and systolic blood pressure, they found that the um, sugar-sweetened beverage consumption, those in the highest group, um, had about a two millimeter of mercury difference than those in the lowest consuming group. Um, Again, might seem like a pretty small difference, uh, but Um, In a general kind of normotensive adult population, this same reduction in systolic blood pressure uh, is associated with a a 10% lower risk of death from stroke and 7% lower risk of death from coronary heart disease. Um, And then just to touch on that fructose um, cross-links proteins to a greater extent than glucose. And fructose um, and all sugars are Uh, reducing sugars and reducing sugars react with proteins and amino acids in a process known as glycosylation or also known as the Maillard reaction and this forms um, everything from the sort of like nice brown glaze that you get on cakes um, and donuts in the supermarket and to the formation of HbA1c in the blood and fructose is a highly reactive uh, reducing sugar much more than glucose is. Um, The uh, the reduced, the, um, this reaction, the products of this reaction will undergo further rearrange, rearrangements <coughs> to form advanced glycosylation end products, or AGEs, and these will accumulate on collagen and DNA and other molecules, and then can cross-link um, proteins which is not good. Um, That accelerates the aging process of cells. It contributes to the pathogenesis of diabetes complications and also cardiovascular disease. And the rate of this non-enzymatic glycosylation um, is much greater with fructose than glucose, such that um, it's 10 times greater um, rate of protein cross-linking with fructose rather than glucose, and also the rate of HbA1c formation was found to be seven and a half times faster with fructose exposure rather than glucose exposure. So just to kind of briefly review um, the effects of fructose, and I have sugar in brackets because, you know, we really don't have any free fructose or no significant amount of free fructose in our diet. So we really have to think about, when we think about fructose, it's really thinking about sugar um, and how much sugar we're consuming. So sugar, Fructose doesn't stimulate leptin, so your brain isn't gonna know that you've eaten something when you take in fructose. Um, Fructose contributes to hyperinsulinemia, both by making the liver more resistant uh, to uh, the insulin, um, and that also contributes to insulin um, resistance in the periphery. Fructose promotes the development of fatty liver and also can cause dyslipidemia. It increases the risk of hyperuricemia and also hypertension. And it has the ability to cross-link proteins, um, which has detrimental effects in itself as well. Um, So hopefully I've sort of started to convince you that fructose is a little different from glucose and that it can be pretty uh, damaging um, to our health and our well-being. And it's something to kind of um, think about in future and think about when you're talking to families and maybe if you're ever um, counseling them about um, diet and nutrition. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that I didn't um, have time to put into this presentation because uh, I wanted to leave enough time for questions and discussion. Um, so I'm happy to um, answer any questions or um, talk about anything else that anyone wants to know about. And thanks for listening. Remarkably well
0: prepared presentation. Oh, that that was great. Um, have there been any studies targeting fructose consumption to see if that works better than a conventional
1: diet for weight loss? I know there's been a little bit with lower uric acid with hypertension that should benefit, especially. In- yeah, they um, there hasn't been anything where they've, certainly, they've done a lot where they've added fructose to the diet and seen what happens. They haven't really done anything where they've taken it away. At one point they thought um, for people who were diabetic that a high fructose diet would actually be beneficial because it didn't necessarily, you know, it didn't need insulin for its metabolism. Um, but that didn't pan out because they just saw um, the detrimental effects in sort of their plasma their lipids and their triglycerides, so um, that that wasn't um, as good as they thought it was going to be. But there definitely is um, a need for something where they really specifically take the fructose out. They've done. There's actually there was a study in. Uh England, where they removed sugar sweetened beverages from schools um and a year later they found that the school where they uh had removed the sugar sweetened beverages from had a stable rate of sort of overweight and obesity, but the other school where they kept them in um the rate of overweight and obesity had continued to increase that's probably the most um like that's what i've seen that's most similar to sort of uh taking fructose out of the diet and seeing what happens. Blessing. This is
0: very tumbling because this started with
1: medical advice with good
0: intentions mm. and very bad. I'm almost wondering if we should alter what we tell families about five fruits and vegetables. There are certainly fruits that are higher in fructose and fruits that are lower in fructose. I just wonder if you should be putting together a list of,
1: it's, you have five fruits and vegetables of these. Yeah. And none of these. Yeah, so it's, the amount that you get from fruits and vegetables is really negligible when you compare it to the amount that's in um, added sugars in our diet. And the other thing, and this was something that I would have wanted to talk about but didn't really have time, is that when you take in sugar or fructose with fruit or vegetables, you're also taking it in with fiber. Um, and that's a really important um, thing to think about in terms of like how you absorb the sugar and how you metabolize it um and if you take sugar in with fiber you end up you know eating less sugar overall cuz you feel more full um so i think that there are some people who are talking about that the way we eat fruits now is not the way we ate them right and that there
0: are a lot of fruits that don't contain the fiber that they once did and hmm. Now, if they have fructose in one piece of fruit, it's just not
1: that great. Or one serving,
0: but it is sort of interesting to think about how that diet has changed as well. well to
1: uh, comment um, mm-hmm. in relation to that, over the almost twenty years I worked in pediatrics, yeah. I've met only a handful. Yeah. <laughs> Too much fruit. Yeah. I think New Hampshire
0: WIC is still giving juice out to families. And yeah. it's such a disconnect between what we're telling them in our offices yeah. and, and what we know. And is there, have you talked to anything with offices? Is there knowledge
1: about why it's still continuing? Why WIC is still giving out fruit juice? Yeah. I don't know. And I think that's something that is, you know, I, I wish it, it didn't happen because it's just promoting this idea that fruit juice is a healthy drink for kids to be drinking, and it's, it's not. Um, and also, you know, I, th- I think families find it hard to understand that fruit juice isn't healthy. I had a dad tell me once that, you know, his kid drank like cups and cups of juice a day, but he bought the juice with the no added sugar, so it was fine, you know? And so, yeah, I think that's definitely something important that needs to be looked at. So the. Is it just a misnomer that it's high fructose corn syrup? Yes, high sugar? exactly. So it's only called high fructose because they're taking it as like, they're using corn starch and they're just making glucose. So it's relative to when they start off it becomes high fructose, but actually high fructose corn syrup is either, um, this, the main stuff that's in our food is either 42% or 55% fructose and sucrose is 50% fructose. So it's really, it's really pretty much the same. And, uh, Like processed by your body? Right. No. no. And then the other question is I had been thinking that these people who are doing this paleo diet were bonkers. Mm. It sounds like that's sort of that like fruit and nuts. I mean, it's it is, it's a way to cut out processed food from your diet, right? And I think that's the main thing, one of the main things we need to do think about is cutting out the amount of processed food. So they're still because, but they're still crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Bloomberg has become, yeah. as a politician, who I think we all recognize is probably ahead of his time. He's mm. um, a hero to many of us. He's obviously taking us on. I, you, you've told us about the science and the physiology. Mm. But did you delve you into the politics of fructose at all? Um, not really. Other than, where you want to go?
1: Yeah. Other than sort of following what they've been trying to do, which sounds like it's a pretty, pretty hard war he's trying to fight. And uh, from what I understand, it has not been too successful so far. So, but I applaud his efforts. <laughs> yeah. Dan, yeah. I wonder after um, doing all the great research that you've done to put together this talk, um, if, if it's changed at all your practice, sort of what you tell families, or if you have advice for us about, um, about how we should mm. uh, take your talk back to yeah. the website. Um, I think it's just sort of to help make people more aware of what's in the food they're eating. Um, and that a lot of things that are um, marketed as being healthier and the ways they're marketed is not really true. Um, so, you know, just like things like the fact like the fruit juice with the no added sugar, just trying to explain that, you know, what that really means and, and how much sugar there really is in that. Um, and I think just trying to encourage people, and, you know, this goes into, like, a whole other topic and the barriers that are out there, but um, people eating, like, fresh food and unprocessed food as much as possible, which, like I said, uh, that's a whole other topic in itself and has a lot of difficulties associated with it. But I think it's just talking to people and making them kind of to debunk a lot of the nutritional sort of misinformation that's out there.
0: Yeah. That that was an awesome presentation. I'm a bit overwhelmed by all the information, I'm not, not certain how to approach this question. But the um, I didn't get that you that you approached the economics. So I get the feeling from just listening to the to the mm. media. Mm. Of these issues the consumption of certain of these products is, is related to economic status so it's uh, it's easier mm-hmm. it's faster it's cheaper yeah, it's um, convenience than than the healthy mm-hmm. route is mm-hmm. that is that true is that does mm-hmm. that play a role in all this
1: I didn't look too specifically into that, but I think that definitely is the case. You know, if the easier option is out there and often it, it can be the cheaper option or it's the closer option, then that's what people are going to go to. Um, and so, yeah, like it wasn't something I specifically looked into, but I definitely think that's a factor that's involved.
0: Yeah, this is one thing for all the, not me mm-hmm. it, but the people who see outpatients to recommend all these things yep. to people, but if they can't afford
1: them. Yeah, yeah, or if they can't get to them.
0: Get them.
1: Yeah. They, they live in neighborhoods where they're not
0: even available. Yep. Yep. How, how does that work? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good actually, question. You know, we have people here right in this department that study just this issue, specifically over at the Hood Center. Natalie Dalton and her colleagues. And uh, she's come to talk to us specifically about the issue about sort of the, the environment, the adult environment, in terms mm-hmm. of its uh, influence on people's uh, dietary uh, behaviors. And, uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we can get her back again to talk specifically about that. Lamina, did you want to there was a, there? yeah. There's a blog, actually, you guys might be interested in, where uh, a woman looked at the amount of money you got from food stamps and actually was able to buy fresh fruits and vegetables and non-processed foods within that amount of money. Mm-hmm. And um, I forget the link. Actually, one of the patients had shared it with me we mm-hmm. were talking about how you could but if you did a Google search on blog for you know eating a healthy diet within a budget, that site would like come up. It's interesting. Just a comment as a parent um, and noticing that two to six year olds, we was talking about them having all this done. I mean, even educated <clears throat> parents of means get bombarded by the organic cereal mm-hmm. bars and yeah. like, this kind of fruity. Yeah. Snack and that thing,
1: and whatever, and it's just, it's,
0: it's unending, and it's ridiculous,
1: yeah. the you know, yeah. market, yep. and none of them are different, you know, yep. it doesn't matter if it's organic. Right, so that's exactly, <laughs> yep. <laughs> organic sugar is no different yeah, from non-organic yeah. sugar. i feed my kids good stuff. Yeah, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. And so the point about children eating more snacks, as the mother of a toddler also, right. like it's just throughout the day, everywhere we go, there's people giving their kids right. goldfish, or Right. my number one on my head list. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and kids don't feel, they can eat them whenever. So mm-hmm. I'll counsel parents that when your child tells you that they're hungry, give them something that they'll only eat if they're hungry. Right, yeah. Not because it's a fun snacks, snacks. So the kid will eat a goldfish at any time yep. of the day. Yeah. He'll to eat a carrot stick or an apple yep. slice. Yeah, <laughs> and I think there's that one of the things I think about is like sort of it's okay, especially with kids, it's okay for them to be hungry in between meals. Right. You know, there's this thought that oh, they're hungry, we have to feed them, but it's actually it's okay, it's good to be hungry in between meals. Means you take in better food when you do eat. <laughs> yes, oh, thank you. The, the meal time. I talk to a lot of parents because they say their kids won't eat this, won't eat that. They don't sit down the meals. They graze. Right. All day. Yeah. The Mm. Uh, and I say, well, when, when you sit down, does the child see you? No, we don't sit down yeah. to eat. We feed the child separately. So mm. it's a whole different yeah. social situation out there. Yep. A, a fun thing to do is ask families um, if they have dining room tables hmm. and stoves. And there are amazing number who actually don't mm. have dining room tables anymore. Mm. People just go get something and microwave it and sit in front of the TV. Yeah. So we need
0: to wrap up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Very much. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
0: really?